Hello listeners, it's Natalia Mota here. Thank you for listening to Arta Podcast, which simply shares stories behind art. For the last few months, I've been interviewing one of the most successful artists who based in Hong Kong. So if you are curious, you want to feel inspired, or hear how to be an artist in Asia, this podcast is for you. And if you want to learn more about the show, please visit artaapp.com and don't hesitate to leave me a comment. I would love to hear what you think about the show, what you would like to hear in the future, and anything really what is on your mind. Thank you so much. Hello everyone! Today I want to explore how it is to create an abstract painting using a slice of fresh meat. Literally. And how to be the fresh meat in the art industry, metaphorically. I had the pleasure to chat about both with my guest Michael Ho. Michael graduated in fine arts from the University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA, in 2018, and within only a year, he booked solo shows at Toby Art Fair Tokyo, Art Central Hong Kong, and Tokyo International Art Fair, with a great success. He is currently represented by Gallery Shimamura and Tokyo International Gallery. I chat with Michael how his roots and education influenced his work as a conceptual artist and about his transition from being a student and producing very academic art to a sustainable business. We also explored how to work in a studio, how to present yourself and perhaps shift slightly to the more commercial side of art to achieve a perfect balance between business and academic. For those of you who are not yet familiar with terms such as academic or commercial arts, don't worry, Michael explained the concepts. And please don't hesitate to also look at the show notes to see a few examples of commercial and academic projects to better understand it. Last but not least, Michael's latest project has shown brilliant conceptual work and unique materials such as raw steak. How you can use meat prints in conceptual art? Please stay with me and enjoy episode 11. Hi Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Pleasure from my side. How is how's the weather in Tokyo? It's uh, getting a little bit more humid as we enter monsoon season, um, but it's not too bad. I'm from Hawaii, and um, the weather, I would say, right now is pretty much the same as my hometown. Awesome. Yeah, and well, in Hong Kong, it's the rainy season, so um, mm-hmm. it's uh, raining slash uh, windy slash super sunny in one day or in even one hour sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, thank you so much for your time, and I'm so looking forward to, to, to hearing your story. And I would like to start from when did you actually discover the passion for paintings and sculpture? When I was... Uh... I think it was um, in between my junior and senior year of high school. I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. I wanted an arts-based practice, but I was thinking more of um, 
kind of computer science as a primary focus and then digital art, perhaps um, design or product design as my secondary focus. So I was looking at like Carnegie Mellon for their um, it's a degree called a BCSA. Uh, so it's like bachelor's in computer science with an arts focus. But then my parents kind of urged me to look into both aspects. So like they sent me to um, UCLA has like summer camp for mm-hmm. specifically like fine arts. I applied for the painting program and it's this two week long program where you stay in the dorms. You're you're with a bunch of other um, high school students and artists and you work with like uh I think like the instructors, they are grad students and undergrad students from UCLA's art program. And so that gave me a good understanding of what kind of art program UCLA is like very much so based in the academic focus, kind of hyper conceptual. And that's at that time, right before senior year of high school, that's when I really wanted it kind of really inspired me to pursue a studio based practice like that. I liked, I enjoyed the freedom of it. I enjoyed the kind of um, experimental aspect in terms of concept. Mm-hmm. Like and I, I was, I painted throughout my whole life um, just kind of technically. Uh, and so, but by the time I was a junior in high school, I was just really tired of doing technical work. I found it incredibly boring and tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't much substance to it. There's, there's nothing that I really wanted to pursue. But at UCLA, it kind of introduced me to the academic side of art. And that's really what drew me to the program. And, um, then I applied for that program and then I got into it and, you know, up until now. Awesome, awesome. And, and why did you choose paintings and and sculpture? You're doing both now, right? So, yeah, so yeah. painting and sculptures. So, did you, that was the first thing you, you fell in love, or have you experimented with um, some other form of art? I was always painting throughout high school, and that's what my portfolio was. Um, was a painting portfolio that I submitted to UCLA. Um, I did at UCLA, I did, we have to do a bunch of different courses. That's what our degree requires us to do. So there's this um, department called New Genres, which is kind of video-based art and performance-based art. And my first year at UCLA, I was actually really into video installations, kind of projection mapping, creating. New Genres is kind of a mix um, between sculpture and performance art is mm-hmm. kind of like you create this, you uh, manipulate a space for certain kinds of installations. And I thought actually that was going to be my main focus. But then I realized what I found most interesting about the new genre, my new genres work is the sculptural aspect. And mm-hmm. so now on top of my painting practice that already pre-existed before my time at UCLA, I found a kind of new interest in the three-dimensional So now there's like these two other courses that involve the three dimensional aspects of fine arts, which would be sculpture specifically and then ceramics. Mm -hmm. Um, And both in those fields, I found like different means to create art. So um, I have uh, what I showed in Art Central is this uh, three dimensional sculpture of a saber tooth tiger skull that's constructed from hundreds of layers Mm -hmm. of laser cut cardboard that I that are reinforced with fiberglass resin and then 
painted with, um, I covered half of it with epoxy putty. And so these kinds of practice or these kinds of means of production is what I developed and learned about in sculpture because the UCLA sculpture lab has so many high quality tools like a, a CNC router. That's like an eight foot by four foot bed. This is like a $40,000 piece of equipment. And then wow. in the ceramics lab is just equally as comprehensive in terms of um, tools and equipment. And so all you have to do is really pay for the clay and a small lab fee of like 60 mm-hmm. bucks and you could make unlimited anything in the ceramics lab. So I spent during my time, um, during the quarters that I took ceramics, I just started to learn how to throw clay. I would make different kinds of pots, structures. Mm-hmm. Then, then I used throwing to not only just make pots, but I would use throwing in order to make larger forms that I could manipulate and turn into sculptures. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, um, uh, where I came up with uh, this whole series of, of pots. I made like 30 and they were like of these fugu fish, these blowfish. And so mm-hmm. those are, those kind of three main focuses is what I mainly developed at UCLA, you know, painting, sculpture, and mm-hmm. ceramics, which I consider sculptural. But mainly in Tokyo, I've continued my painting practice, definitely. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. painting is just kind of the easiest to get to because all you need is a studio, canvas, and then some sort of, some media to mm-hmm. put onto the canvas where ceramics is a lot more difficult. I'm not really able yeah. to continue that here because I don't have a lab and sculpture as well. So mainly right now I'm doing painting. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it seems like uh, UCLA opened for you so many different doors. So if you can actually tell us about your experience there um, in point, like if there is any specific course or maybe professor who shaped also your style? There are two painting professors that I think influenced the direction of my practice the most um, in terms of kind of challenging new concepts that that would manifest in my practice. And then I think they still affect me or affect my practice up until now. So there is a contemporary painter, his name is Larry Pittman. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also Mimi Lauder. Larry Pittman is represented by Region Projects, uh, Region Projects in LA. And then Mimi Lauder is represented by Blum and Poe um, recently. And so I took their courses multiple times. And in those courses, like the, the ability to articulate such specific uh, terms in, in terms of visual analysis, like Larry Pittman is just a total master and such an academic um, when it comes to like breaking down what a good painting is. And that's kind of what I took out of his course the most. Like he is probably the most critical of his students' work. And that hmm. made me mm-hmm. think a lot about like certain materials to use, like why use this form. Uh, also, he kind of taught me like the foundations and the structure of a research-based practice, something that's outside of the technical more more on the conceptual side of uh, developing art practice. And um, same with Mimi. Mimi is kind of um, Larry's protege. Mm-hmm. And so both of their um, teaching styles are very similar. And mm-hmm. so those are the two professors that probably influence my painting practice the most. And then in terms of sculpture, I work with um, a ceramics professor and then a sculpture professor. Who actually, he I mentioned him before. His name is Adrian Wong, and he 
is kind of an installationist slash sculpturist that mainly shows in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And he's also, he's like the ceramics version of Larry Pittman. Like th- his vocabulary is so extensive, so precise in terms of breaking down a sculpture, the, the kind of visual analytical skill that he has in his practice and in his courses is just phenomenal. Um, and so him and then, uh, ceramicist Adrian Sachs, both of them I, I work closely with, mm-hmm. um, you know, had one-on-one conversations kind of critiquing my work and, um, those, those four professors really helped shape me to be who I am right now and what my practice is right now. That's, that's so incredible. Um, and, and it's, it's so lucky to have this kind of mentors to, to start where yeah. I guess. And, uh, and yeah, and you are traveling quite a lot and, and your path brought you from, from Hawaii to LA and then now to Tokyo where you based now. Um, could you tell us a bit more how all those different culture, um, influenced your work? Yeah, so at UCLA, I had a bit of resistance to this idea of my cultural background being um, half Cantonese, half Japanese, and from Hawaii. Like, there was a bit of resistance for me to input my cultural heritage into my work because I didn't feel that it was important. I don't, I didn't feel that it brought any substance to my practice. You know, like, there's so many people from Hawaii, you know, who really cares? There's so many people from Hong Kong and Japan, like it doesn't really matter. And so mm-hmm. throughout, I think my time at UCLA, none of my work really pertained to a cultural or ethnic background of myself up until I got to Japan. Kind of what made me think more about the importance of my culture and my work is that mm-hmm. it, it adds a certain kind of credibility to the images that I began to use. Like slowly I found that flowers and kind of native Hawaiian species became central to my practice. And then that was, that's not necessarily biographical. That those were, these were source imagery drawn from whatever kind of images I've been exposed to through my entire life. But now that I'm like being a professional studio artist, like your identity is very much so under a microscope. Like, mm-hmm. um, a lot of, a lot of like Latino and Latin American based artists in, um, in LA, like that's highly central to their practice. And I felt somewhat of that similar calling to my practice in Japan. You know, now I'm in an, an environment where everyone is, Japan is incredibly homogenous. And so now, I'm this foreigner that doesn't really speak Japanese. I'm from Hawaii. I'm half, I'm half Japanese, but I'm also half Cantonese. Now my, I felt that my ethnic background and cultural background became more compared to when I was in LA, which was a much more of a um, heterogeneous mm-hmm. kind of environment. So I think that's what I like to think is the reason, um, kind of images from Hawaii and images of my Japanese American background are kind of um, being developed subconsciously in, in my current painting practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you also managed already to showcase your work at uh, one of the biggest fair in Hong Kong called mm-hmm. Art Central, 
Could you tell us what you showcased there and to describe the collection? Yeah, so um, after I, gra I graduated one year early at UCLA in um, 2018, and then three months later, I moved to Tokyo. And then my galaxy was like, hey, let's apply to some art fairs. Um, you know, it's kind of a shot in the dark. We, you don't, I don't personally don't have any prior, prior uh, professional experience just because mm -hmm. I recently graduated. So it was a nice surprise to know that Art Central had accepted us, um, knowing that my reputation pretty much doesn't exist um, pre mm -hmm. Art Central. And also the gallery, it's, it's, was, has been for 20 years an antique based gallery. And now they're in the current transition of switching to or opening up a contemporary brand. So everything about everyone I was working with was completely new. And so mm -hmm. um, it was a nice surprise. And then I knew this was, this is my first international debut. So I, I really wanted to put in and create kind of like the work that represented uh, the prestige of UCLA's conceptual um, like program and the experimental program. So I, all the, all the work that I showcased at um, Art Central is, is on my website. And so I guess how to kind of visually describe the body of work that I showed was that I created this kind of process of printing um, using raw pieces of steak. So there's this, there's this uh, fish printing technique. I think it comes from China. Um, it's like a 200, 300 year old practice that also the Japanese use is called gyutaku. Which, which literally means, um, like fish printing. So this kind mm -hmm. of ethereal documentation of fish would be used by fishermen in order to, um, create this index of the exact catch they made just because there weren't cameras back then. So it would, mm -hmm. when they dip the, their catch in ink and they would print it on the paper, it would be this one to one translation of that, of the form of the fish. And so I found that quite compelling, you know, this idea of like index documentation, like the, 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 like a, a signifier that signified. Um, and so I did this with the same method, but with, um, pieces of raw beef. And so <laughs> I would create these, I would create these pattern fields, these big, like two meter by two meter canvases of like meat prints. And <laughs> although, although these prints are a one to one representation of the form of the grain of the beef of, of like the tissue and the, the muscle fiber, it's much more difficult to identify what was being actually printed. So I was interested in this kind of um, ambiguity, this uh, liminal state of existence of this of this form on the canvas. It's it's both an actual print from and a, a signifier of physical intervention by a piece of steak, but the imagery that it alludes to doesn't really exist. It, it feels a lot more abstracted than it actually is. So mm -hmm. when I and I like to work in a large scale because there's something about um, paintings that are a little bit bigger than the average human form that mm -hmm. you can, you have a more uh, physiological engagement with the work. It's more multi-sensorial um, in terms of like navigating the work. So the whole concept was, you know, to enter this booth, you see these large canvases with these kind of abstracted prints that, that look both visceral, but also painterly at the same time. And then they're at this kind of ratio that's a little bit taller than six feet. You know, these are two meter by two. They almost feel like a door. They feel like a physical door. Um, they feel almost you can enter them physically. 
right? Going back to the idea of uh, mm-hmm. the physiological engagement of the work. And then in a few of my pieces, I would, I would play with this idea of perspective. So I would get this high gloss enamel and I'll create these like floating, they, they appear to be floating platforms in these pattern fields. So the patterns themselves, they're highly flat. They, they, they kind of, uh, signify this idea of flatness. You know, that's what, that's what a print is. Mm-hmm. But then when I introduce this idea of the perspective, this perspectival aspect is now uh, in a dichotomous relationship to the idea of the flatness. So not only, not only is it playing with this, it, it's playing with this idea of, of, um, simulation, right? It's like this, uh, an illusionism. It's, mm-hmm. it's calling to the history of illusionism in painting. You know, traditionally, Painting has been about this is an image. You are the viewer. Look at the image, mm-hmm. suspend your disbelief and enter this world that this painting is proposing. Whereas my work is kind of in this kind of uh, it's almost satirical in a sense. It's saying I'm both material, but also playing with the history of perspective. And so like um, because I had a solo show at, in Art Central, I wanted to what I would deem successful is if uh, people could feel the same response that I'm trying to invoke with these kind of um, dichotomous concepts. Well, I have a few questions to what you just said, and it's so interesting to listen about uh, all your um, techniques and, and thoughts about um, about your, your collection, your show. Um, so starting from the last one, uh, how people reacted on, on the show when you mentioned that actually use the meat prints and uh, and and also about the perspective like what was the response so people like the, a lot of people came up and asked like what are these you know what are these forms what are they you know sometimes they kind of thought it was a brush stroke some people thought like mm-hmm. maybe it was they they had an idea that they felt that it might be a some sort of print of something they're like is it bread is it is it your skin um, but yeah, they were, yeah, yeah. they found them compelling. Yeah. They pretty much all the responses, you know, they didn't know what it really was, but they were compelled by it. They, they felt the necessity to investigate the origin of these prints. And that's, yeah. and that's kind of the response I wanted to elicit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, to, to get people curious of what is it and, and how. And could you tell us, because uh, I never actually met any artist who would, working with with meat with beef mm-hmm. um how how it's to work with such a material like uh, is that easy and let's say if you are choosing a, a type of meat is it is it always the same or you would choose different one to create to, to kind of try it out which prints do you like the most? If you can give us a bit of uh, backstage, how 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 was to create these pieces? It's a pretty difficult medium to work with, just because of how ephemeral it is. Like the fat itself is uh, it it deteriorates really quickly in water-based paint, and especially in room temperature. So you mm-hmm. don't want a cut of beef that is so fatty. Even though there's good marbling on, let's say, like Wagyu, if you try to print with Wagyu beef after a few prints, it, it would literally all the grain structure would melt and you would just be left with a bunch of fibers. Mm-hmm. So you want you want a leaner cut, but you don't want it as lean as uh, like pork. Like I've tried pork prints, but they just they don't capture the grain 
that necessarily um cuts of like a cow do. I uh they don't they don't pretty much one steak will last at best one day. Like um you have、mm-hmm. to once you start using it you have to have canvases prepped so you can continuously use them because by the end after you wash off the paint after you try to use it again pretty much everything has dissolved and now you can't get that kind of iconic oval shaped、um, meat、mm. you know that that cut of a steak yeah you know? so, so so did you count、um... How many steaks did you use over the time for for the entire show or for for one painting? I think probably I had seven paintings, and I would say、uh, maybe six steaks steaks total. So about one steak per、um, painting. Because I, you know, yeah, at time at, I would work on one painting at a time, and so、mm-hmm. I would start with the background, with the the meat prints, and so I would print that、mm-hmm. meat. And I would work throughout the week on that painting, and now I can no longer use this piece of steak. It's it's gone bad. It's dissolved. So I would throw that away, and I would finish the painting. So about one,、um, yeah, pretty much one meat、uh, piece of steak per painting. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And、uh, how did you decide to actually go with meat? Like、um, I, I, you mentioned that that. You read about about these techniques about measuring fish by by putting it to the to the paint.、Mm-hmm. What was your thought? Like why why you transform it? Like aha! Like I think it would be really really cool to do it with meat.、Um, when did start it? Like did you have any story、um, where you had this eureka moment? Yeah, I was.、Um, it was at UCLA, and I was just I was thinking about this installation. And thinking about these,、uh, like a kind of central imagery, like what would I use? And I felt that there's a bit of I needed a bit of kind of edginess in my practice, there,、um, because the whole the whole concept was this kind of parody on high fashion、mm-hmm. um, for this installation. And what is kind of being、uh, romanticized right now in fashion and in streetwear specifically is is a lot of. Edgy references and edgy imagery, and so I thought like a steak, a raw piece of steak that's so visceral, that's so edgy. You know, the, the、mm-hmm. whole gesture of getting、Agreed. steak and just, and just slapping it on the ground.、Um, <laughs> I found it somewhat comical and humorous, and so like I was in、um, I was in the dorm room of one of my friends, and we just slapped the steak onto a Xerox machine, and then we. We copied, we like copied it, saw what it looked like on the computer, and I thought it was just like this is the perfect imagery, like this is it. This this steak, it doesn't look like anything, but once you know it's a raw piece of meat, it becomes a little bit more edgy, it becomes a little bit more street.、Yeah. Um, it exits that kind of couture language of fine arts and and totally、um, kind of spits in its face. So I was like, I have to I have to print with this material. This like this will be great to make a. Like a pattern out of. I was at the time. I was thinking a lot about textiles and, and fabric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's absolutely brilliant、uh, idea, and it's something very outstanding. I have to say.、Um, <laughs> I, I think I never heard、um, about anyone who used、uh, stakes.、Um, so you are the first one. Great idea. And、um, and you mentioned a few times that you know, like you are transitioning now. You are very.、Uh, Young artists, and、mm-hmm. uh, you are transitioning between the the academic art 
into commercial markets. So how do you find the transition itself? I think initially at UCLA, the closer I got to graduation, the more I was concerned about identifying my career identity as an artist. Like, I, I, I will continuously identify as an artist, but it was a matter of if I could turn that into a career. And I thought a lot about this during um, my senior year, and I would try to consult my uh, classmates about their plans, and they just, none of them really seemed to be interested in having like a financially sustainable studio practice. I mean, it's not that it's an easy thing to do, but I don't think many of them were thinking about the practical steps to take in order to become financially uh, stable as a, as a studio-based artist and to seek representation, to seek kind of commercial success, because that's a huge component of um, identifying as a professional and studio mm-hmm. artist. And so I had a bit of fear because like our UCLA's art program is not gauged. It's actually the opposite. It, it the professors are actively encouraged to avoid talking about anything that pertains to the market, pertains to the sales of art, you know, auction houses, blue chip commercial galleries. We never really heard anything. So everything that I had to do after graduation, uh, you know, on top of having, um, you know, kind of a coffee talks with my professors. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I had to learn everything myself. I had to teach all these steps to myself. And even so, like I was saying, the work that I showed at Art Central, it was I what I felt, you know, work that I would be proud to show to my professors, work that I felt was had a, had a strong concept um, and it represented my academic background um, accurately. Mm-hmm. And, and it attracted that attention. There were like um, there were there's this like really big um, art collector. He bought, I think, one of the most expensive um, Basquiat paintings, and also he mm-hmm. bought the first, Elon Musk's first ticket to Mars. His name is uh, Mayazawa. He's president of Zozo Town. And one of his main art consultants found interest in my work. And, you know, she has an extensive art historical background. There was a, uh, one of them, um, a Japanese deputy director of Sotheby's at, mm-hmm. at a show in Tokyo found a lot of interest in my work because of it. She understood that there was a strong academic background that I came from. And so at one point, you know, on one end of the spectrum, I was really proud that I was attracting this kind of attention. But mm-hmm. the thing that I'm slowly learning as a young emerging artist is that kind of the attention you get from from the people that are academically trained in art and art history is different from that of collectors and buyers. Like collectors and buyers, if they don't have an art consultant, they're coming from an uh, uneducated art background. They're going they're going to buy and collect things that they are visually drawn to, which is mm-hmm. not necessarily, if you're not, tr- if your eye isn't trained for um, a good taste, to have a good taste in art, the things mm-hmm. that are visually attractive are usually pretty kitsch and um, art that has bad taste. And most likely this is some sort of pop art. You know, that's such a dirty word to use nowadays, pop art. But mm-hmm. so those two ends of the spectrum. And although, I like the attention that I'm getting from the academic art world. It, it doesn't necessarily equate to sales and connections to higher, um, uh, like tier clients. And so what I, what I am quickly realizing is like, I don't have a reputation. I don't have, um, a blue chip gallery representing me. 
like I'm fresh out of an undergrad program, right? Like my name mm-hmm. is nothing. I need to seek a balance in which my practice can exist in a sort of academic realm, um, in an academic con- uh, context, like a museum, but also can attract the attention of uh, a crowd that like uh, what Wen Wen calls it is like, it's like churning. She, I think it was her friend that mentioned this, but it's like churning the art world. Like it, you need, you need this trifecta of like the auction houses, the collector, the kind of like the source, the, the financial source of the art world. Mm-hmm. Then you have the institutions that validate quality, um, like museums and galleries. And then you have the artists themselves. Those three components of the art world all need to be in a kind of symbiosis with one another. And I think. For me, as an artist, I need to fully accept that symbiosis and engage with it. And what that calls for is a balance between um, the commercial viability of my work and also the academic viability. I, I don't want to shift. In my in my point in my career, I do not want to shift too close to either pole. You know, I, I mm-hmm. think uh, balancing in between is really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, what do you think was would be your next step? Um, so you mentioned that you you want to stay somewhere in between to <clears throat> to kind of touch both the the um, high art and and also the commercial side. Um, so what what is your next step? So I talked about this with a few of my close friends at UCLA, my um, artists. They're also art students, and. We were kind of talking about like what ism are we living in right now as artists? What movement are we going through? Like we we can't necessarily identify with any movement. We don't really know what's going on. But I've had this a very interesting conversation where I think I've someone identified what's going on. So you look historically, movements when they're happening, in the moment they're happening, there's a lot of resistance to what they're presenting. Like Andy Warhol, when he first got it, got it started, you know, his work is now considered kitsch because of how accessible his imagery was. Um, but when he first got it started, this this idea of, of manufacturing the digital process, taking away that kind of beautiful side of individualistic production, like there was so much resistance to Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was thinking about, okay, like this feels like that that's happening. That there's this neo pop art, the second wave pop art that you see that's occurring um, through like Takashi Murakami, like Magsaki, um, mm. Yoshitomo Nara, like a lot of these Japanese, a lot of Japanese artists. I'm looking a lot of Japanese artists just because I'm in Tokyo. But the success and the scale of Takashi Murakami's work is it touches everything. And I know my professors and art history professor at UCLA, they, they actively refuse to talk about Takashi Murakami and his practice because they consider it so commercial, so kind of like a, it's, it's, it's kitsch, it's commercial, it's of bad taste. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something interesting happening right now in the crossroads between fashion and art and, and like the, the commercial world. It, it's like this never before. So like, off-white, you know, very big um, uh, fashion brand and the art and the designer Virgil Abloh, and the creative director of Louis Vuitton. He did a collaboration with uh, Murakami in a, a gallery space, and it's like, okay, is now Virgil Abloh? What is he? Is he a desi- is he a fashion designer? Is he an artist? Like, 
the definition of what an artist is is so incredibly blurred. If you look at um, kind of runway shows, they're almost so they're so mimetic of of what performance art initially was in um, starting in like the 80s or um, or even in the 60s with like this whole Dadaism that happened decades ago. But it seems like fashion is now catching up and, and the runway shows are becoming almost Dadaist, these Dadaist performances. So like and also so going back to Takashi Murakami, it's like his work is not only um, like sold in, in no, he's represented by like Gagosian and he's having like huge museum retrospectives, but also he's like selling toys, he's selling shirts, he's selling merchandise. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, there's so much academic resistance to that that I, I can't help but think this is the next stage we're entering. And so in t- going back to your question, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm, where my practice, I think, is going mm-hmm. is responding to what I believe is a beginning of an incredibly important art movement. Um, so, you know, I told you in, um, when we're uh, chatting is um, the gallery that I'm with, uh, the new contemporary gallery that we're opening up um, is called Tokyo International Gallery or, or TIG. And mm-hmm. the opening ceremony, we want to have a, um, a pop-up shop in Harajuku or, or somewhere in central Tokyo. And, um, you know, we want to release like limited merch, high quality with my designs. And so like m- my practice existing through this like idea of a pop-up shop is <clears throat> it's not that I'm, I want to become a fashion designer, but I want my practice to manifest in different forms. You know, it can come in the form of painting. And in a sense, the whole pursuit of, of like fashion and merchandise. I, I kind of find it interesting through the lens of a performance work or an installation, right? Instead of a pop-up shop, I think about it more as this is an installation that I'm curating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I feel, yeah, it's heading currently. Oh my God. So, so, so great to hear that. And uh, yeah, good luck with the pop-up because <laughs> Thank it seems you. so interesting. I need to probably schedule my visit in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I'll uh, let you know the date and then it'll be awesome if you could come by and check it out. I'll, I'll give you some free uh, merch. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. I would love to. Um, mm-hmm. So it seems uh, you you are very clear where you want to go and uh, and where you're standing now and it's so great to, to see that such a young person it's, 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 it's so... Uh, inspired and so uh, mission driven and um, and this will connect to my next question about your art routine like how 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 you are reaching this state of of high creativity and what do you do on on a daily basis to 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 get the ideas so uh, when i it's really weird and I'm still in this transition period, but it's really weird to be a student your entire life for 21 years or 22 years. You're, you're essentially just a student. That's all you know. You know the routine of what it means to, to have a grade. You, you have an essay due in one week. So there's such a small timeline that you're conditioned to while you're a student, right? It's essentially month to month you're living by. 
and you get a good grade, you, you feel rewarded and then boom, you know, it's onto the next class, it's onto the next exam. Mm-hmm. And you have this kind of instant sense of gratification until you leave, until you're in a real world and you're, you're working an actual job. And, um, so my day to day would be filled with, okay, maybe I should set a routine for myself. Uh, I'm going to go to work at this time from this time. I usually go from uh, 1, 1 p.m. to 10 p.m. just because I want to avoid, um, the like rush hour in terms of the train you know Mm -hmm. tokyo is notorious for just ridiculous rush hour so i would say you know let's see if i can work from 1 p.m to 9 p.m and i would do this and then i would be like okay after a month of just creating work i'd be like okay i'm out of canvases because instead of you know working four hours a day or even two hours a day during a studio course, you know, only three times a week. That's what I would do at UCLA. Now I'm Mm -hmm. working as long as I need every single day. You know, I don't have a weekend. I don't have weekends. I make my own schedule. And I would, Mm -hmm. I would just pump out paintings like 10 times faster than I would at UCLA. So I'd finish pretty much what I would consider a two quarters or 20 weeks worth of work in one month. And I'd be like, Oh shit. Like, Hmm. Now what? Right. My my art central is in four months or like or it's like in two months, like I, I finished where am I going to do? And that was the first time I ever felt like I'm not going to be able to feel a sense of gratification until hmm. like months away. And that kind of that's really scared me. Um, hmm. And so I, I talked to my uncle who um, he's a software engineer in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, he uh, is one of the founders of um, PayPal when it was cons- called X.com. And he made his own company called M-Spot. He sold that company to Samsung. And so he, oh, his whole, he, his whole, his uh, professional life has, has, um, you know, been his own boss. He's created his own schedule. And, and I was talking to him about like, how do I manage this lifestyle? Like I, I, I feel resistance to it because I'm so conditioned towards a routine student schedule my whole life. And he was telling me like, there's going to be times where you just, you can't, it's not productive to actually go into work and try to work. Like no matter how much you try as, as a, a creative, you can't just say, I'm going to work so hard and now ideas will come. Like if, Let's say if you're a bodybuilder, you can work a certain amount, you can have a certain diet, um, a certain regimen, and you will probably be able to deadlift X amount in mm-hmm. X time. But as an artist, what I quickly learned is like, I can't just say, hey, I'm going to work 20 hours in one day, and then boom, I'm going to have a Art Basel level work or anything like that. And mm-hmm. so what he was telling me is just what is actually most productive is sometimes just not doing anything like going on a walk uh, or doing anything that's not related to work, those are where your best ideas tend to uh, originate from. And so that's kind of what my schedule has become um, in the past, after Art Central in the past um, half a year. It's, it's, It's more like I do something extracurricular, you could say, you know, go to the park, travel, go to a cafe, and I found that the notes, the art notes that I have on my phone, like have just been pumping out. They they have been generating a lot faster than if I just force myself to stay in my studio and, and make it work. I found mm-hmm. that if I force myself, I would make such 
like bad quality work, I wouldn't be proud of it. It just feels like I'm making something for the sake of having or um, using up my time so I can feel mm-hmm. rewarded at the end of the day. But my best work comes when like a month goes by and I wouldn't even touch a canvas. And then I would think about mm-hmm. such and refine such a good idea that I find is so interesting. And then, you know, boom, in a week, I pump out like five, two foot or two meter by two meter canvases. And I'm like, okay, that's it. That this is my process. So mm-hmm. in between big shows, my routine has become like, oh, you know, kind of sit and think, develop an idea before I impulsively create the work. You know, I, I wait, you know, two weeks maybe and then work like all day to just physically make the work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, during the time uh, when you when you actually think about what to do and 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 as you said you are going for a walk etc. If you have any eureka moment, um, are you writing these things down to kind of not forget about this thought, uh, or or are you keeping it? Um, just in your mind and then later on you will just put it on compass what is your practice i write it down like instantly these are so, the ideas i have are so absurdist i you know i don't know where they're coming from the concept doesn't make sense but maybe the word there's something interesting about the phonetics of the word or the mm-hmm. or the meaning of the word or pieces of imagery i find visually um like uh compelling and so i have like this big like this huge long comprehensive document on my phone in my notes app that of just things and ideas and little doodles that just absolutely don't make any sense but when i when i kind of um i uh collage these ideas later onto mm-hmm. canvases they seem to all kind of make sense so i know subconsciously the interest that i have when it comes to kind of absurdist ideas they have some sort of logic to it some sort of sub conscious logic um and so like i draw from it could be like notes from months ago even like years ago i'd be like oh this idea i should get back to this there's something that might work with something else Mm -hmm. in my notes Mm -hmm. and i would you know i would collect maybe like three pieces like three uh notes that i took and be like okay there is substance here there is something that i find interesting now in order to develop this idea and think about how it's going to visually manifest I have to, you know, put this down, create a few prototype sketches, maybe write down the concept. Um, and then from there, I'm like, okay, how will this manifest onto a canvas? It's kind of like a, a like a process like of a puzzle and puzzle mm-hmm. pieces put together or like mm-hmm. a riddle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's extremely, uh, smart idea. And are you taking all those notes, uh, with your phone or do you like to, have actually a physical notebook just because i have my phone with me all the time i would say 99 of my notes are all on my phone and if i if uh, they're in the form of a doodle i'll just do some really rough sketch just so i don't forget the idea of what i was trying to achieve so like mm-hmm. all my all my notes are digital also i can't lose them i save them to the cloud these <laughs> are, like these notes are so important to me like i can't i can't lose them Absolutely, absolutely. And do you have any? I'm, I'm sorry because I'm, I'm always very curious 
about uh, the mix with, you know, technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I'm just curious if you have any uh, specific app which you like to use to um, to kind of make orders in your notes or visual it better. So then you can, as you said, like do this beautiful collage and see the pieces, all the pieces together. I like to usually uh, compile various source imagery in um, Photoshop. So I, if I have an idea of the palette I'm going to use, I'll be confident enough to paint a canvas because that's not much of a commitment mm-hmm. to paint a background or to um, propose a certain palette. It's easy to mm-hmm. change. So what I would do is I would have the canvas. I would see it in the space. I would take a picture so it's framed within a kind of a white wall, put it into mm-hmm. Photoshop, and then I would draft a few different um, drawings, like uh, mm-hmm. or words or drawings. And then I would start to see, like, what is the scale? What is the proper scale to this size of a canvas? Oh, what color should this be? Um, and I could easily change things. And so, like, Photoshop is my main tool of prototyping. If I, I use, like, ink transfers um, a lot of the time. So, you know, it's getting a gel glass medium getting a mm-hmm. standard uh, inkjet printer, you apply the gel gloss medium to the ink side of the paper, you let it dry on the canvas, and you can rub off the fibers, and now, boom, you have only the ink left on the canvas. So you, that's it's a really simple way of translating mm-hmm. a digital image physically onto the canvas. So uh, in Illustrator or Photoshop, I would create um, kind of images that I'm going to actually physically print out and adhere to the canvas. So there is a bit of digital production and also digital prototyping involved in the means of production in my work. Yeah, sounds great. And um, I wanted to also touch base, I will change a bit subject, um, but I would like to come back to, to, to your artworks. And we didn't yet talk much about your sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could describe your current style and also the mission behind them. The process that I um, am really drawn to and essential to my sculpture practices, like uh, I, I <clears throat> have the software that takes 3D files or 3D models and, and it cuts it up into layers and it, um, it assembles these files with each layer represented in a 2D file. And so you, it prepares it for a laser cutter or a CNC router. So when I was when I was making um, my uh, my signature style is like is this is this layering so on my website I don't know, I don't know if I posted I'll I'll post it sometime soon but um, you'll see that I have this skull it, it, you can identify it as a skull and most people can identify it as a saber tooth skull specifically but what I find conceptually interesting is how evident the digital means of production are left. Like you can see that this is not made of bone. You can see that this was constructed digitally. It at one time existed in a digital space and then it was retranslated into a physical object and then compiled together to recreate that, that digital form. So what I find interesting is, is this idea of translation, you know, at mm. one point archaeologists found, um, or paleontologists found a, an actual fossil of a saber tooth skull. Right. And and when finding that there's a certain veracity that those um, 
archaeologists or paleontologists have to accept, right? This form is probably what a Sibutus tiger skull looked like. And at, and at that point in time, that's what humanity and society deemed as the most accurate representation of that animal. And then they, someone 3D scanned it, put it on the internet. I took that from the internet and manipulated it. And then I put it into a software that would later manipulate it even more. And then I would reconstruct that into the 3D form. So it's just almost full circle. It went from physical to the digital and then back into the physical. And so those little artifacts of intervention that the software had, the intervention that I had as an artist, right? Like I had to mm. construct this, but a computer constructed the files. Like, so it's this almost collaboration, this like uh, linear historical collaboration that goes all the way back from when the saber tooth died up until the point where I constructed this uh, model of its skull. And so like th- this whole idea is playing with the, the authority of the museological, right? Like you go into museum, you see you as a viewer read uh, about an animal or a dinosaur and you accept that you, you, you accept that the museum is giving you accurate information. And that, and that's, I think a way that people accidentally view contemporary art, like Mm -hmm. viewers of contemporary art, they're not going into museum. There's, there's nothing that is necessarily inherently, um, scientific or objective about contemporary art, but it seems like most viewers are going into a gallery, reading a wall text and being like, Oh yeah, that is what the work is about. No, viewers have a lot more control over what contemporary art is than they actually believe. So my sculptures are kind of playing with that. You know, they are, I'm presenting the skull in a museological form of presentation, right? It's on this plinth. It's, it's on like a pedestal. It's under a light. It's like everything is signifying, Hey, this is kind of like a museum, but the skull itself is so obviously intervened and digitally created. So viewers, what, you know, what I expect my viewers to do is like kind of to start to question like the, the, the veracity of the form that they're looking at is like, Oh, it kind of looks like a saber tooth skull, but I know it's a sculpture. So like, was it constructed by hand? What, you know, what was um, mm-hmm. construed? Right. And so it, it's this idea of, of calling attention to the viewer and how a viewer consumes art, you know, it's making them question the ways in which they view art. You know, I don't think people should just look at art and be like, Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the artist in the text said it's about this and they just accept that. Like, I don't think that's the proper way to view art. And so what I would like to achieve with my sculptures is, is to start to question the way that people look at art. Uh, I see that also one of the of the paintings which you have on the on the website, it also has the the, the skull as you mentioned, and I'm I'm just curious if if, if you try to also uh, collaborate between between what you are showing on the painting and also on the sculptures and um, and also it's quite interesting uh, the titles of, of your paintings which that's another question which I would like to ask. Uh, mm-hmm. how you came up with, with, with the titles. Yeah. So, uh, referring to your first question, it's, um, like there, I have, I have, uh, you know, a skull referenced in my painting. And then I also work with skulls in terms of sculpturally. And so mm-hmm. ideally the kind of presentation that I would like my work 
to be seen in the context is all together, mm-hmm. right? Not, not necessarily in a group exhibition and ideally not an art fair, but what I want is like the paintings themselves to start a somewhat, um, conversation with the sculptures, right? Like this, the skull itself is being referenced, um, illusionistically within the paintings. The paintings are referring to the sculptures. So not only is the work engaging in an active conversation between viewer and painting, but now the paint or the paintings and the sculptures are somewhat communicating in that sense. Like the, the images are echoed. They're referring to one another. It, it kind of activates the space physically and also um, conceptually in terms of how one navigates the actual mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then let me um, bring up the titles um, of my work. Is there is there a, a title specifically that you want me to explain uh, the origins? So, for example, the uh, the for example, city goose time. Um, you are also like the boom one, which is it's really uh, really really cool. I actually thought of a really uh, a couple months ago. I thought of a really good one liner that would describe how I come up with my phrases. And, and that is hmm. the, the titles that I use and the words that I use in my paintings are parodies of satire, right? So there's hmm. this one level of satire where it has some sort of sociopolitical agenda. And that's what hmm. satire, you know, that's the general idea of what satire is. But I'm not, what my work is not doing, it doesn't have a sociopolitical agenda. It has a mm-hmm. seemingly sociopolitical agenda. So it, mm-hmm. it's, it's parody of satire. And so like Silly Goose Time, it comes from, uh, just this, there's this comedian, his name is uh, Chris Dillia. And um, he just has like this recurring term on his comedy podcast where he's just like, oh, I'm just trying to have a Silly Goose Time, right? Kind of like mm-hmm. a hedonistic mm-hmm. lifestyle. It, it, it's, it's just so it's absurdist, it's parodical, it's um, comedic. But yeah. the way I present it, in fine arts, when when absurdist kind of comedical phrases are placed in fine arts, there's much more emphasis on meaning, on this idea of poetry, right? Mm-hmm, so, the, mm-hmm. so silly goose time, it, it's kind of representing this drip text. It adds a um, a more aggressive kind of aesthetic, but it also has these playful colors. It's like asking the viewer to question whether or not it is actual absurdism, or whether or not there's an underlying poetic meaning to it. So it's like you know, what could silly goose time refer to, you know? Um, and then, um, what was the other, what was the other, uh, painting? That you asked uh, about? so the, the one with, well, I have, I have this, I love all of them, by the way. So it's hard yeah, to you. choose even one, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, the one which, uh, which is quite funny because it's look uh, a bit like, um, like you would make a mistake and, and black hole on the middle. So it's the boom one. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah, the title makes sense. It's like a big boom. Is it is it a reference to a, like a black hole or something like this? <laughs> yeah, I think like so. Like I was saying, with how viewers engage with my sculpture, the validity of how viewers navigate my work, it's it's all the same, right? Like how you interpret the poetics of Boom, it's left inherently um, ambiguous, right? Like Boom. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a simple word. It, it, it's an it's a onomatopoeia, right? It's it's a mm-hmm. word, but it's also a sound. And then in America, you know, like because uh, gun culture is such a kind of loaded subject right now, it's a little bit fragile. And also mm-hmm. um, terrorism, ISIS, this idea of like relating boom to bombs. You know, yeah. like I was saying, it's a parody of satire. 
you know, it's, it's making the viewer question, is this about, is this somehow a political critique on terrorism or is it, is it just a sound? Because that's all a word really, that's all the word really is. It's the sound is boom. It's the sound. Mm -hmm. Right. So like when I'm presenting these ideas, they're not, they're in this beautiful state where they're not fully about something, but they're not fully absurdist, right? Like if I were to, so there's this artist, Sam Durant, and even my, one of my professors at um, UCLA, Barbara Kruger, a lot of their work is, and also like um, Christopher Wool, um, a lot of their work is text-based, a, a lot like mine, but they have a much more intentional political agenda. So their work is satire, or their work does overtly communicate um, a kind of a sociopolitical critique. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat playing with the idea, uh, that idea of control. Like, I don't believe um, political art really does as much as political activism does. You know, a lot of artists like to think, oh, political art is political activism. But mm-hmm. the, the power of actions compared to power of images, it, it, it's, I mean, specifically when it comes to how abstract art can get. Like, mm-hmm. I think the more conceptual you get, the less people can understand the political agenda and the less effective uh, mm-hmm. political art as political activism is. So I'm playing with that idea. It's like, oh, I'm playing with this idea, kind of um, initially directing the viewer to believe that I'm trying to communicate a narrative, mm-hmm. but then perhaps tricking them to believe that. And they, and they're understanding yeah. that, Oh, I'm being tricked. This is not about anything. It's mm-hmm. just comedy, but mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. kind of important comedy. I don't know. That's how I put it. Very playful, very playful and, and super interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I can just see how many thoughts and uh, how creative you just are. Um, Thank you. It's just incredible. Um, and well, I don't, we don't have much time. So I just wanted to mm-hmm. ask you three more questions and then we, okay. we, we are, we are done. But um, first of all, could you share with us any story about uh, creating a painting or creating an entire uh, show which which you are the most proud or attached to um, because of the story behind? I think all of the paintings that I showed at Art Central, I felt are among my strongest works that I've made to date. Um, just not only because of the scale and how comprehensive they were, but when I <clears throat> when I uh, discovered this kind of um, specific paint, this really high gloss, um, I, I think it was one of my TAs in uh, painting in my one of my advanced painting courses. His name is Ari Salko. Mm-hmm. I think he uh, graduated from the graduate program at UCLA Fine Arts. He's a great, very skilled uh, drawer and painter. But he told me about this paint called, he was like, oh, use, like, you seem to be really into material, use this paint. Um, he recommended it was called Aqua Coat, um, I believe. And then when I used it, when it dries, it has such a high gloss finish, but not only that, it, it drips a lot. It's very, it's highly viscous. So you can see these drips that are, have solidified in place. So initially when you look at it, it looks wet and it always looks wet. It, it looks in this eternal state of wetness. And that's mm-hmm. what I found most interesting. It's not only like this idea of glossiness, but it's now a somewhat visual, physical experience. It elicits this kind of response 
like even when the art packers came to my studio to prep my work to be shipped off to Hong Kong, they were like, is, is it okay? They asked me, like, is it okay to touch the surface? Because even they believed that yeah. it was still wet. And uh, that, cool. yeah, so like, you know, that kind of helped contribute to the development of my concept and the central um, art statement of the, of the Hong Kong show like this playing with this idea of materialism compared to illusionism, right? The kind of mm-hmm. juxtaposition between hypermateriality of a painting between the flatness and illusionistic qualities of an mm-hmm. art. Like this paint, it has been like my favorite media to play with just because of the, just like if it's physical materials. Um, and so, you know, in, in the Hong Kong show, the big, you can't see it in the pictures and that's why like it's so much better to just see this work in person but um you can see these like squares these platforms whether or not it's the red platform of um one of my large two meter by two meter it's part of the uh um spiders die on their backs um kind of set mm-hmm. of work and it plays mm-hmm. with the, the idea of perspective so anything that's not a meat print you see like the background that that's a high gloss um enamel and then the red platform is a high gloss enamel and really when you you see these in person from far away you understand and feel this idea of the perspective the the perspectival aspects of the painting but the closer you get when you enter the space you can see oh you know this platform is not actually on top of the background the background is actually on top or the background is actually the foreground in a physical sense like you can see that I had to tape off these regions and then paint the background over with the high gloss. And um, you can see that. And then, then when you get close enough, you can see the way light reflects off of it. And then you start to think about the physical space, like, Oh, now lights have become part of the work. Um, Kind of in like, I think it was a, I forget who made this work called mirror cubes. I don't, I don't remember the artist, but yeah. So like this idea that a work is responding to the physical environment that it's placed in. Like I mm-hmm. felt that was most successful in the work I had in Hong Kong. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. Thank you so much for, for this one. And uh, the next question is a question which I always ask. Um, and um, you, you don't need to necessarily think about artists, about art industry, mm-hmm. but um, but you can go to literally anyone you you uh, you like. So the question is, if you had a chance to hang out with some super famous artist, who would it be, and why? Hmm. Like um, if <clears throat> kind of in response to that, I definitely wouldn't want to hang out with. Uh, I actually wouldn't choose. A fine artist just because i think they're so difficult like artists talking to other artists and artists it is so difficult to be there's some there's some of the weirdest people i believe some of the just uh, but i think uh let's see it, it would be someone outside of the industry outside of the fine arts industry that understands and appreciates the complexities i i feel like this is kind of i know this is hard to determine because this person's public reputation uh isn't in the best light right now but i feel this person probably understands and is willing to understand the most of what i'm trying to achieve and and, and that person is uh probably kanye west oh. like I've, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've listened. So his mom used to be, an, I believe, an English professor at SAIC, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Chicago or School of Art Institute of Chicago, which is mm-hmm. one of the best art programs in the nation. And he was recently given an honorary doctorate. So he's technically Dr. West. Um, mm-hmm. And I would listen to the speech. And, and a lot of people think Kanye is this kind of crazy, bipolar, arrogant. Superficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But when he was surround, when he was giving his honorary doctorate speech at SAIC, he was surrounded by people that are vastly more intelligent than him. And he knew that. And I urge everyone to go listen to that speech, like listening to him and then listening to his uh, interview with David Letterman and also looking kind of more um, at a visual analysis of his Yeezy collection, what he did for sneakers, like um, his like dad's shoes. Just pretty much every aspect of his creative life. I feel he has always tried to become a fine artist, but always was mm-hmm. like stuck under something else. He he said actively, mm-hmm. he's not he's not a musician, he's not a rapper. He's more than that. He's had that kind of um that uh, pull. He's felt that pull to this part of the art industry, and and I think his overall practice is incredibly successful and influential. And I think a lot I mean a lot of people would disagree with me because they think he's crazy, um, but just having an open mind and listening to his his interviews and speeches like no doubt like I would 100% want to spend a day and kind of have him pick my brain and I pick his brain that would, I feel would be a, a phenomenal moment uh, so yeah good point good point um, and the last question would be um, how your fans can find you online and offline. So, um, so we talked already a bit about your website. Um, would you like to point your fans to any other direction? Yeah, uh, you can, you know, because uh, we haven't decided the date on the pop-up shop and I don't post all of my work on my website. The best place to keep updated with my activity um, any upcoming shows and pop-up stores and merchandise releases uh, will be at my Instagram. Yeah, and uh, so I keep everything pretty much updated, you know, what's going on in my studio, the kind of current work I'm producing. And um, you can find my website on there as well. But it's uh, www.michaelho.xyz. Amazing, and I will I will also include it uh, to the uh, to the show notes so uh, so um, everyone can find you easily uh, in oh, Instagram you. and in your website. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. I, I so envy you for already like very straightforward. You really know where you're going and and what you want to achieve. Um, and I'm your big fan, especially after you explain. Um, how you are creating uh, your work and also um, about this this comedy which you are bringing with with uh, uh, with also technology and new new medias and uh, incorporating it in in paintings and and sculptures it's just so empowering um, so thank you so much for it and uh, I had you. a great really time fun. all the best thank you so much you too bye. Okay, so that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you liked the discussion. And yeah, let me know if you want to hear more from Michael and if you have any comments. Thank you so much for listening. Bye!